2: Hi, I'm Sam Glover, And I'm Aaron Street. And this is episode 82 of the Lawyerist Podcast, where we talk with rising third-year law student Jamie Sutton about his new law firm business model, a sliding scale nonprofit legal clinic.
1: Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answers our phones so we don't have to worry about getting interrupted when we are being productive. And
2: we love the job they do. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Abacus Private Cloud. Future-proof your firm by going virtual. Learn more at abacuslaw.com. So, Aaron,
1: I recently did a presentation with podcast guest number eight, Aaron Hall, about policies and procedures in a
2: lot I firm. love when we can, like, reference back to our old podcast guests in new podcasts. It's one of my favorite things.
1: It's We will. We're on episode 82 now. So, we actually have so many previous podcast guests that it's getting difficult for me to get through a presentation or a conversation about law practice without mentioning one of them.
2: I know. It's so amazing and <laughs> self-referential. It's like watching an episode of The Simpsons. <laughs>
1: there you go. So, policies and procedures sounds really dry and boring. But as you know, I am kind of obsessed with procedures manuals. And I have been for a long time because when I started outsourcing things, I started putting them into procedures manuals. And so, let me just explain real quick why I think they're important and then I'm interested in you telling uh, our listeners if you think I'm just, uh, this is just one of my obsessions that nobody else needs to pay any attention to. But I like them because when I write down the checklist or the forms or the procedures and the, the links and the reference manuals and stuff to how we do things, it becomes a useful tool. For how the how the company operates, or how the firm does things, whether it's intake or whether it's uh, client conversations or whatever it is, uh, and then it becomes like the code of your firm. Like if your firm is a software, that's the code, or, or your procedures manuals, and then you can iterate on it, you can tweak, and you can say, okay, now we're going to answer the phone this way, or this is how we're going to talk to clients. We're going to introduce every phone call with this sort of a greeting, or. You can even deal with like how you stock the, the waiting room with materials and stuff. And so I love procedures manuals and I try to make them detailed, but also useful. And uh, and it's just sort of at the core of how I try to get things done and manage things with the team. And, uh, and so that's what our presentation was about. But I'm kind of curious as from the other side of it, do you think I'm just obsessing about it too much? Or is this actually a useful thing that makes our team more productive?
2: Well, I'm not sure in what way I'm like on the other side of it. Like, I also <laughs> help manage these things. Uh, well, true. It's certainly yes. your passion more than it is mine. I, I think they're absolutely useful. I mean, you certainly became obsessed with them, after, and I think Aaron Hall did too, who you co-presented with, after reading the E-Myth Revisited, with, which yeah. is like simultaneously a really important book to read. With the weirdest book title ever, since there is, as far as I know, no book called The E-Myth. Or if right. there is, I've never actually seen it. And it's terribly <laughs> written as well. And then he has it like is. a number of follow-up books, which are which as are a awful. general, yeah, they're terrible. And yet you should still read the book, um, despite its bad title and bad writing.
1: It, it's badly written and kind of insultingly written but the, the core value of it is really good, and it and it's about checklists and procedures and how to run a company so that you can make it more valuable, and it really resonates.
2: Yeah, and so, so. And so it does resonate with me. I do think it's important. That said, um, I think it can be taken too far. And if anything, I think your passion for it could <laughs> err too far on the taking it too far side, which is to say <laughs> that his thesis, Michael Gerber's thesis in writing this book was... Um, to kind of franchise your business, where you put all your procedures in a manual and then basically employees can be interchangeable. You can scale growth as much as you want so long as everyone follows the procedures. And anytime you need to make an improvement, you just tweak the manual and then you can constantly be improving, have everything written down, blah, 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 blah. I think that's great. I think one challenge of it is including so much detail about every process in a creative and brain-based job like a law firm or a publishing business is different than running a fast food restaurant and therefore it's harder to expect that people can have fulfilling jobs where they find autonomy and mastery in their work if they are slavish to the details and fine points of a 400 point checklist um, and if they're feeling like they constantly have to be tweaking commas here and bullet points there to keep it perfectly updated. And so I, th- I think that's my one hesitation to to taking this too far, um, is you then become obsessed with the manual rather than with good people doing good work.
1: You know what? That's a super point. And it, it even came up, um, I, I think lawyers are actually prone to uh, demanding that people do what we want them to do, not what we tell them to do. And so to a certain extent, the exercise of writing down what we want people to do is effective. But on the other hand, this idea that people can just be assembly line automatons that you plug into your procedures manual and they will be efficient and somehow still be fulfilled in their job is also silly. So, you know, finding drawing that line where you're making a procedures manual more of a guide that's a a useful tool and a reference is, I think, the part of the art to it. And one of the things that I actually think you helped me figure out as I was learning how to be a better manager was that you need to get buy-in from your people. And one of the ways that you need to get buy-in is by helping them sort of getting on the same page about what the goals are. Like, why are you giving this proced- them this procedures manual? Because they're a worker ant that you've hired and you pay or because you're working together to accomplish something? And so I try to put at the top of all of my procedures manuals But not just to put it there to talk about it with people like we're doing it this way because we're trying to give our clients the best customer service that we can possibly give them so that we can solve their legal problem and turn them into raving fans of our firm. Like even if you can get everybody on the same page about that, then the procedures manual isn't just, you know, doesn't turn you into a robot. It's more of a tool that facilitates you in, in meeting that goal. So is that what you and Aaron talked about? That is what we talked about. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Good. And, and, it's, and it's, it's what I... It's, uh, maybe I'm just telling myself a story to justify my obsession with procedures manuals, but, um, but I don't think so. I think, they're, I think they're actually super useful. And I think having Agreed. some is really important. Having comprehensive checklists for everything that you do is probably overkill, but I think most law firms could benefit from having more than they currently have. And now on a completely different subject... Let's talk about how to start a sliding scale nonprofit legal clinic while you're still in law school. And maybe we'll even end up checking in with Jamie Sutton in a few years and see how it's gone. But for now, here's my conversation about getting that going.
0: My name is Jamie Sutton, a third-year student at Indiana University Maurer School of Law former Marine Corps infantryman and the executive director of Justice Unlocked, a nonprofit legal services clinic.
1: So let's just get this out of the way right off the bat. You are a law student who is the director of a nonprofit that is delivering legal services to clients.
0: Uh, that's right. And it's not something I would recommend for everybody.
1: <laughs> well, let's let's before we start talking about what it is and all so tell me, tell me, why you decided to do this? What, what, what about being a law student led directly to you deciding you couldn't wait to graduate? Well, you know, I started law school when I was
0: thirty-one. I had had experience running a small business before. I had been a Marine Corps non-commissioned officer, uh, so three more years of school in front of me just made me a little antsy. Um, I definitely saw there's. There's a distinction that can be drawn between the older JD students who have had that life experience and those who are kindergarten through JD and are only, you know, 21, 22 years old. Mm-hmm. I think um, having job experience, having real life experience has been a tremendous asset to all the students that are non-traditional.
1: Hmm. So, what was, what did you do? I mean, what's, what's the approach and, and how did you do this thing? So uh,
0: my first year of law school, like all other JD students, I started thinking about what I might want to do with my career after I graduate. Um, And for me, I think I even started thinking about that a little earlier, as I said. Uh, So in legal professions class, we were talking about different Ways that law firms are structured, solo life versus big firm life versus small firm. And I just knew from my own life experience that I really kind of wanted to be my own boss and be able to do my own thing, have an entrepreneurial spirit. So I started thinking up business plans for after I graduate. Am I going to do a solo firm? Am I going to find a partner? I got really interested in the new movement of sliding scale clinics that do low bono services, you know, extremely discounted services where they're still charging a client fee, but it's at, you know, sometimes as low as 30 or 40 percent of the market rates.
1: Gotcha. So you got interested in it. And how did you decide, hey, I'm going to go ahead and do this? And what were the steps that you went through?
0: So one of our board members, uh, Stacey Williams, is the director of Indiana University Student Legal Services. She's been a big mentor to me, um, a great help and motivation. I was kind of just playing around in my free time doing different business plans. How much would that charge? You know, what's the market like here in Indiana? And as we kept going through the business plans over and over again, eventually Stacey and I in a conversation, she said, you know, why wait until you graduate? Uh, as a nonprofit corporation, you, you can have board members, officers that aren't lawyers. Uh, if you can find a local attorney who's willing to give it a shot, you can at least test the market a little bit.
1: Okay, that's fascinating because I didn't even think about it that way because the prohibition in the ethics rules is you can't have non-lawyer owners but a nonprofit doesn't have owners.
0: Exactly, a 501c3 nonprofit, which is the status we have from the IRS. In a legal sense, my understanding is it's technically owned by the public, you know. For example, if the corporation were to dissolve, all of the assets, all of the money in the accounts, everything else would have to be given either to the state or to another nonprofit. So, we spent a good amount of time looking over the ethics rules, just sort of going over them with a fine-tooth comb and trying to figure out if we could do it or not. I know I actually called um, the ethics hotline, sent Indiana State Bar Association's um, main ethics guy an email. I never got any answer back. Uh, I don't know if that's because I'm a law student or just because they were busy. (laughs) But eventually we decided, you know what, we'll sort of go for it. uh, And if we're not supposed to do it, surely someone will tell us very shortly.
1: How was this received when you actually formed this thing? You got the attorneys on board, you got the nonprofit out there, I assume you attracted a board. Um, and at some point, you have to start in, interacting with the legal community as a law student who is directing a legal services nonprofit corporation. How? What was the reception you got? You know, I think uh, from the lawyers
0: uh, in the area, there's been a lot of skepticism. I think it's a combination of me still being a law student, of it being new, um, especially for the area. It's really a
1: new concept. And Well, I mean, it's. I think the only other person who's really done this has already been on our podcast to talk about it, right? It's like, it's brand new.
0: Right. There are a couple of them popping up around the country. Oh, I'm on a cool. listserv for uh, sliding scale clinic directors, actually. But in Indiana, there certainly weren't any working on this model. Mm-hmm. Um, what is interesting to me is from the judges, court reporters, clerks, people like that, we were welcomed with open arms. It was a very warm reception and I think that's because they're on the front lines and they see these unrepresented litigants in the court day in and day out. They see people who need attorneys but can't afford them and that the local pro bono organizations are overloaded. And I think they were really interested in the idea of helping that demographic.
1: Hmm. So, um, you said it was greeted with skepticism by the members of the bar. Uh, Did that I I'm, I guess maybe I'm uh, uh, assuming, but uh, my hunch is that maybe even open hostility from some people? Well, I remember
0: uh, one local attorney who will remain nameless. Um, <laughs> I showed her sort of our donor one sheet. Uh, it's a one-page description of the organization that we were going to be using to raise funds and private contributions. Uh, she told me to go get any copies I had given to anybody else, delete it from my hard drive and not show it to anybody again. Um, And then she reminded me that the unauthorized practice of law is the number one reason in our jurisdiction that a candidate might be held back from the bar.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I, I guess, are you worried that that's going to influence your application to the bar once you graduate? I feel like we have a really
0: strong case to make under the rules of professional conduct in the jurisdiction. I, to be honest, I can picture having to go in front of a character and fitness committee and explain it, but mm-hmm. I think hopefully I would be able to do so articulately and in a way that they would buy.
1: You mentioned uh, donors. Uh, does that mean that you're funding this through uh, donations or fees or both, or how's, it, how's that happen? So, we're mostly
0: funded through fees. In an ideal world, uh, on paper, the business plan is designed. So that we generate client fees from our cases and we charge on a sliding scale based on people's income uh, as low as 30 or 40% of what the market rate is in our area. And the idea is that those client fees are our sustainability. We can live off them, keep the lights on, and keep the doors open. And then we are actively looking for grants, private donors corporate donors, things like that, in order to fund growth, new staff positions, better offices, things like that.
1: Hmm. And, and are, you, are you raising money outside? We are very small okay. right now on the level
0: of a few hundred dollars a month. We are uh, in the application process for four or five local grants that we're hoping will bring in quite a bit more. I think the reason we haven't raised more is honestly our fundraising fell by the wayside in favor of providing legal services. I think we drastically underestimated the demand.
1: Well, tell me about that. Tell me about the demand. So, I can
0: tell you because we just had our second quarter um, report to the board of directors and I had to prepare that report. We have opened in our first six months, we opened around 50 cases. We did around 90 intakes. Uh, We've generated about 20000 in revenue uh, from client fees alone. I think we had expected in the business plan to, especially for the first few months, get three or four cases a month, maybe. I think we had 15 or 16 intakes our first three
1: weeks. Wow. That's pretty... That's... So, business is booming.
0: It is. And it actually, for a while there, became a problem where a lot of the things... And I believe a lot of solo practitioners run into this themselves. A lot of the things that we could be doing to make ourselves more sustainable and more efficient as a corporation, things like marketing, a good bookkeeping, um, fundraising, donor development, things like that, uh, fell by the wayside because we just got into the weeds of working cases day in and day out. And. Not to mention, you still have to go to law school and pass. Yeah, I will tell you, Sam. My grades took a major hit the semester after <laughs> we opened. I I am still above the median. Yep. I won't I won't say by how much, um, but my grades did take a major hit. You know, unfortunately, that that does happen. Something has to give. Now, the good news is, of course, that I've essentially created my own job and I don't right. have to worry about impressing an employer.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, you've got a job waiting for you, it sounds like. Is, is it self-sustaining? Are, you, are the fees enough to keep the lights on so far? Or is that still sort of in, I mean, I, you've, been, you've been around for six months, so not a whole lot of data to go on yet, but it sounds like you're off to a roaring start.
0: They are. They are. Uh, we have turned, um, if you look at a month-to-month basis, we have been turning a very modest uh, positive net revenue each month. Wow. Uh, only only in the area, you know, after payroll and expenses, a couple hundred dollars positive each month, but over a couple months, that starts adding up. I think the big thing is our staff attorney, Michael Lopret, we owe quite a bit to him. He's essentially taken an enormous pay cut to come and work with us.
1: Hmm. And is the, uh, are you working into your business plan that you hope the lawyers who work for the comp- the nonprofit end up somewhere comparable to what the market would bear? Or uh, is, is serving the mission always going to be a substantial part of what they, how they're compensated? No,
0: absolutely. We'd, we'd like to pay a competitive salary. I think In the nonprofit sector, overhead and administration costs get a really bad rap because people like to think their donations are going to Mm -hmm. helping the clients. Uh, But in order to get good attorneys, good staff, you have to be able to pay them something competitive. And in fact, in our first seven months, we've been able to give the staff attorney two raises. Uh, He's still making an amount that most lawyers would find absolutely laughable. But we have made it clear from the start that we have an intention to pay him a market rate, at least a market rate for legal aid type services.
1: Now, um, you were telling me before we started recording that your fees are, uh, one of your challenges is collecting those fees and getting the kind of fees you're expecting because it it sounds like you your, your income guidelines were designed to serve those falling into the traditional access to justice gap, which is people who make more than legal aids income guidelines but less than we would ordinarily understand can it makes them able to afford a lawyer Um, but it sounds like you're finding out something different so what are what is going on there
0: well most of our referrals in our first six months being open have been from the local legal aid society local pro bono organizations and from uh the court clerk directly Uh, We're serving a lot of people that are technically under our minimum income guidelines, and we're really worried about the danger of essentially helping ourselves out of business. It's very hard to tell clients no sometimes when these are cases that are potentially life-changing for them. But the local legal aid service only does intakes three to five hours a week. The local pro bono organizations often have two or three-month waiting lists, and so these are people whom... They can try to scrape together $50, $60 an hour. Sometimes they have trouble paying the bills and need a few extra
1: weeks to pay us, uh, but they wouldn't get help anywhere else. I'm going to take two minutes from our sponsors now, and when we come back, I want to continue thinking through that with you and then talk about maybe whether or not lawyers should consider doing something like this themselves. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone. Which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty
2: sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Did you know that law firms are the seventh highest target for cyber criminals? Breaches in security could cost you your clients, your reputation, and ultimately your firm. Protect your firm from cyber attacks with Abacus Private Cloud, the compliance-ready, fully-managed desktop-as-a-service, engineered to safeguard your firm against cyber threats. Abacus Private Cloud is brought to you by Abacus Data Systems, a leading provider of business technology products and solutions, including Abacus Law, simplifying your practice management since 1983. Learn more at abacusprivatecloud.com lawyerist.
1: And we're back. And uh, when we stopped, we were kind of talking about the fact that it sounds like you're not serving the access to justice gap. You're serving um, those outside of the gap who are in the the category that we would traditionally think are going to be served by legal aid. But, you know, I, I've read that, so what is it, something like half or 80% of those who try to get legal aid get turned away because there aren't the resources to help them anyway. So um, maybe there's just as much work to do for those who can't get legal aid. I
0: would, I would agree with that. I think, you know, without getting too political, the local legal aid society and pro bono organizations, even the local court system is dreadfully underfunded. Um, they are turning away a lot of people, and those people still need help somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like I said, they are usually able to pay some fees. They are – I think we're sitting around the average of, for the industry of an 80 to 85% realization rate. Uh, but sometimes it is a cash flow issue where they're going to pay their bill. They just need another three weeks or they just need to wait till next month's paycheck.
1: And it, how, do you, how do you collect from people who are by any definition impoverished –
0: You know, we made a very conscious decision um, early on that we were going to have to be extremely flexible. You know, we're very draconian about our overhead costs and getting expenses paid first. But after that, I found that people are willing to work with you. And when you give someone help, when they feel as if you've been kind, you've been attentive to their needs, and that you've done quality legal work for them, uh, they are willing and even happy to pay. Sometimes people... You know, I hate to I hate to give this image, but they're sort of handing over whatever scraps they can have, just because they're happy to finally get help. Hmm. So collecting has not been a problem of willingness from the clients; it's just been a problem of timing the flow.
1: Right. Uh, and what what kinds of cases are you mostly handling? We're doing about eighty
0: percent family law, to be honest, and I think that is a combination of. Family law is just one of the most common legal needs among this demographic, and it's also because our staff attorney was previously a family law attorney for about six or seven years, Mm. and so the types of referrals that are generated from people he knows that are coming to him personally and from him to the organization happen to be family law cases. I'd say the second largest group of cases we're getting right now actually is criminal misdemeanors, uh, minor drug possession charges. Probation violations, and that's strictly word of mouth. We had two or three uh, minor drug possession cases early on. They told people they knew, their families. The word spread, and now we're handling a lot more of those.
1: But th- those wouldn't ordinarily be eligible f- for legal aid, right? Those would be public defender cases. That's correct. They'd be public defender cases, and
0: we always encourage people to stick with their public defenders. I, you know, the local public defender corps is talented and hardworking. But for whatever reasons, uh, and that's a whole nother debate, a lot of people (laughs) just aren't happy having a public defender. They feel more comfortable with a paid attorney. And again, we encourage them to stick with a public defender, but ultimately, we feel like that's their decision.
1: And are you getting referrals from legal aid yet? I I would think that knowing how overwhelmed they are, they might say, look, you can go to this organization. Um, Although maybe are they waiting to see if if you can prove yourself somehow?
0: No, again, I think... uh, our largest referral source so far has been District 10 Pro Bono, which is the local pro bono legal aid type organization. Gotcha. Um, I think the people who are sort of on the front lines in dealing with this impoverished demographic the most are, are definitely eager for help, and they've been great about sending clients to us. Um, often they've even done full intakes, gotten all the paperwork together. And then said, well, you know what, we really can't handle this case right now, but we'll forward everything to Justice Unlocked if you want to talk to them.
1: And I suppose it helps that you, you have an experienced staff attorney, so uh, that must help um, alleviate any concerns they have about sending it over to the organization.
0: Absolutely. And because of the early concerns we were getting from people about the non-traditional model that we have, we have set up our workflow to be extremely strict about supervision from the staff attorney. We have two legal interns that work with him, but we make absolutely sure every attorney-client agreement with the organization, every, anything goes through the attorney first.
1: So, are you trying to get as much leverage out of those non, the legal assistants that you can, the interns that you can, I assume? Yeah, absolutely. I think
0: a lot of them are glad for the experience. And, you know, I remember, of course I do, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> my my first year of law school, I went into a clinic. And for me personally, it was far more valuable than any of the classes were. I think uh, a lot of today's interns, knowing there's a tough job market out there, are really eager to get practical experience drafting, doing client interviews and things
1: like that. So, are these law students? Interns? They are. Yes. Uh, which is the law school supportive of what you're doing? Or is it sort of a partnership where they've agreed to send interns? Or are you kind of doing that on the TL? Or how does that work?
0: So they've been very supportive. Uh, Unfortunately, the law school has limited resources of its own and have not been able to provide things like money, incubation (laughs) space, things like that. But we do have uh, an agreement, uh, MOU, Memorandum of Understanding with the law school, where interns can actually get class credit if they want to choose to do that and work for us. Uh, We actually were just approved last month as a federal work-study employer, so we can get federal work-study students. We're trying very hard to integrate with the law school as much as possible, both for steady flow of interns and also because the law school, as you can imagine, is an enormous resource of knowledge about the local law.
1: So, uh, if I can sort of sum up, it sounds like you're getting... A Fair amount of support for this you're doing okay based on fees and you sound optimistic about your ability to get donations and if you can do those things then you ought to be able to build your and your staff attorneys up to a reasonable salary and you've got a steady flow of potential interns. It seems like a pretty solid business model, actually.
0: You know, I think it is. I think in a lot of ways, uh, and again, not to get on a soapbox, but I think the legal market has really sort of priced itself into an ivory tower that's out of reach for most people. Uh, You know, when we were doing the business plan market research, around 70, 80% of Indiana would technically fall within our income guidelines. Hmm. Um, It's it's a problem of culture, I think. Uh, An attorney who will remain nameless, uh, locally told me, if you're going to work for $30 or $40 an hour, you might as well work for free. (laughs) Now, I understand that $30 or $40 an hour isn't a lot for most attorneys, but I grew up in a family of four that had a combined income of about $18,000 a year. So to me, $30 or $40 an hour is unimaginable wealth.
1: So let's say we've got listeners now who are inspired by this and want to get started on their own. And I, I confess, if I weren't uh, didn't already have a full time job, I you know I'm I'm already starting to have business plans swimming in my head. I love this idea. Um, where would one get started? Well, you know, I think. Uh... There are a lot of excellent resources out there. Um, I
0: read The Lawyerist. I read Above the Law. I am on a listserv for sliding scale executive directors, um, which anyone can join by contacting Open Legal Services out in Utah. I think you've had Chantel on mm-hmm. your podcast before. Uh, you know, I would say you've just got to look at your local rules of professional conduct – do the do the market research. I think a lot of attorneys forget, and you've talked about this on The Lawyers before, that ultimately any legal organization is a business. Um, just a basic business planning thing, I think, is ignored by a lot of people starting their own practices.
1: And this approach is heavy on the business planning, um, but that doesn't have to affect the way the actual lawyers go about serving their clients. Yeah, I
0: definitely agree. And in fact, our staff attorney is someone who came to us and after talking to me a few times, we had coffee a few times, he confessed to me he'd been in solo practice for about four or five years at that point. And he confessed that he loved doing legal work and he hated running a business. <laughs> <laughs> Which I hear you know? all the time. <laughs> and, I, and I think there are a lot of people who are happy taking a paycheck and working for an organization that's going to take care of things like malpractice insurance, office space. Again, just to sort of repeat myself, I, I think the business planning aspect is overlooked by a lot of attorneys who think if they're just good attorneys, they're going to flourish and make a successful practice.
1: But if you are the kind of lawyer who enjoys thinking about business planning and strategy, then maybe you're suitable for starting up something like this. And and it's fair. I mean, Chantel's uh, nonprofit legal services organization has been doing this for a, a bit longer than yours. But it's fair to say you're both in early stages and there's no, you know, I, I the the pessimist in me says, hey, let's wait and see how this goes. But both together, you've more than proved the concept that it can work at this point, it seems to me. So um, maybe we can check back with you in a couple of years and, and see how it's gone, because I my hope is that you're you're flourishing and making plans to expand that at that point, just just like Chantel's firm has been doing so.
0: Well, I'll tell you this much, Sam. I'm still waiting to see how it goes, too. Um, <laughs> there's no guarantee that in six months or a year, the the business model might not have failed. But I'm reminded actually of, you know, the ABA uh, Future of Legal Services just produced a, a document about the future of legal services. I, I think it's clear to anyone paying attention that we've got to try something new as a profession. The old way of doing things is not working anymore for a lot of firms, and it's not working anymore for the public. I think only by trying new things and failing will you find what works, and that if we intend to stay relevant and serve the public, as is our mission, we're going to have to mix it up a little.
1: Well, thank you for being on the cutting edge of that experimentation, and thanks for talking with us about it today. Thank you, Sam. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.